everyone knows that it should be done. Um, it's just one of those things which get kind of lost in the weeds and um, once the, the application or the project is complete, then you, you've just like gone to production or you're you're like a few weeks away from going live. You don't want to uh, simulate a pandemic. On today's edition of Tech Talks, we're talking to Stuart Bannerman, a lead developer and architect at the firm Tangent, an organisation who were on the podcast about a year and a half ago. We're talking all about whether or not organisations were ready for the pandemic, not just from a point of view of their ability to scale applications, but also disaster recovery. This is Tech Talks. It's your twice-weekly tech podcast with myself, David Savage, talking to industry leaders and sharing a bit of tech news. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm joined by my wife, Hayley, as we are sitting in the sunshine, in the garden. How are you? I'm good. It's a scorcher of a day. I've just made you some delicious vegan pancakes. Absolutely. There's a plane about to fly overhead, which tells us (laughs) that the world is returning to normal and tells all the listeners that we live pretty much directly in the Heathrow flight path. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, We're here because, unfortunately, under quarantine at the minute... Yes. Uh, so not going out for a walk, so that sucks. It does but, uh, suck. We've got a guest who um, I, I definitely kind of after my own heart, because not only have they been on the podcast before, but they have an office in Newcastle. Yeah, I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, ah, oh, okay, that's why he was raving about it. <laughs> <laughs> not the only reason. I didn't know that when they first came on the podcast. But Tangent, yep, they're a digital agency, uh, primarily based in London and in Newcastle, and we're going to talk all about the changes that organisations are having to go through as they build out applications and try and meet the scale as more and more businesses switch to online services. Cool. So today we're joined by Stuart. Uh, Stuart, make sure I get your title right. Uh, I've got you down here as a lead developer and architect at Tangent, although LinkedIn can sometimes be a little bit misleading with actual job titles. So I'll let you introduce exactly what you do at the business. Yep. Hi, I'm Stu. I'm I am a technical architect. I'm a lead developer. I'm a solution architect, basically wearing lots of different hats depending on what client I'm working on or what project I'm working on. So yeah, a bit of everything really. And you've been with Tangent for just over a year and a half? Yeah, about a year and a half now. I joined uh, January the 7th of last year. So yeah, it's pretty much a year and a half now. And I suppose about half of that time now spent in this incredibly weird world where we're not actually in the business or we're not physically in the businesses that we're working for. So um, is that a benefit kind of being reasonably new and, and, and the business kind of going through this stage? Cause I suppose you haven't got too kind of entrenched in your particular ways of working. I've been at one yeah, business I, for 13 I, I, years. So this sudden change was very weird. Um, no. So as a company, we pretty much everyone is able to work from home a certain amount of times in the week. So um, that's kind of one of our, main things so we had all the process and infrastructure and and tooling already set up before this whole pandemic happened so for us it was quite an easy transition from working in the office most days of the week to working from home all days of the week some of us are going back to the office in very small numbers like one day a week at the moment just to show face and kind of get back into it but yeah we're all still predominantly working from home and keeping safe so look, um, Tangent are actually a business that we'd had on the show. We had your colleague Andy uh, probably about two years ago now, so so a little bit of time ago. And it's always lovely to kind of catch up with a business that we've featured on the show previously. Uh, but for anyone who hasn't been listening to our podcast for that long, exa- what exactly do the business do? 
Okay, so Tangent is a digital agency uh, based in London. Um, we also have a, an office in Newcastle. There's about, uh, I think it's 80 of us, 80 to 100 of us in total, um, ranging from developers, front-end and back-end, designers, UX, UI, uh, marketing strategy, basically the whole spectrum of kind of services. Mm. And we aim, we work with any kind of range of clients from the small uh, marketing website for a, a new product to a, an enterprise kind of scale, uh, multi-year project um, for kind of business critical needs. We have different pipelines in, term, in terms of services. So we have kind of the 90-day MVP or proof of concept um, and up until kind of the multi-year project. Just out of interest then, because you, you mentioned there right from small through to the large enterprise, but kind of putting together an MVP on, on, on a 90-day period. I suppose pre-COVID, there would have been a distinction between what those two, sorry, there would have been more of a distinction between what those two types of businesses want. Whereas I suppose now, because of the sudden focus on getting services online, and if you look at some of the large retailers, for example, who didn't really have a digital presence, I guess that there's a lot of businesses who, who you might not have put in the same category before who are now facing very similar challenges, regardless of their size. Yeah, we're seeing that for um, kind of large scale, big box enterprises as well. They're getting hit by um, this whole pandemic and instead of the majority of their traffic or their their business coming from on-premise stores on the high street pretty much it's only website traffic now so you see some um, big names like B&Q where everyone wants to do their kind of DIY whilst they're locked up at home B&Q had a, a queue of like hundreds of thousands of users on their website so there's a real need at the moment to shift the traffic to websites and to be able to scale to that need. Because um, if you've got 100,000 people sitting in the queue and an X amount might get frustrated and close your site, then you've lost a sale there. You've lost a customer. So you need to be able to kind of instantly react to this influx of people and scale to the, the need. Just, just out of interest. Do you have any kind of stats around, you may or may not, it might just be kind of anecdotal, but if someone does get frustrated, they leave the queue, do they just come back later when they think that maybe the site will be less busy or do they go to a competitor? Um, it would be difficult to find if they went to a competitor. Um, it would be relatively easy to know if they came back. Uh, we do have quite, we have a few clients with um, quite deep kind of Google Analytics and SEO tracking and stuff built into their their sites so like our data team would be able to pull that out and and kind of analyze that and, and give that returning bounce rate uh, i don't know mm. what the, the actual uh, term is but so where they've got to scale quickly how easy is that for these businesses to do especially the large enterprises because i suppose if they've got kind of monolithic tech stacks that um, have lots of legacy built in then it's almost <sighs> That must be a challenge in itself. It's almost like, I suppose, a business like yours comes in and it's better to almost treat them like you would treat a small business and go, right, we're going to build a standalone product that you can plug in. Or is that naive of me? No, you're, you're pretty much hitting the nail on the head. So <clears throat> um, it really depends on how the application was built from the get-go. If it's a, a legacy system, which has sat around for a long time and it's it may not be kind of designed and architect for the cloud. It's been lifted and shifted from kind of a, a large monolith and into the cloud, then 
um, then scaling it at a whim um, is typically a lot harder than <clears throat> if it was designed for the cloud and it's more of kind of like a microservice kind of orientated architecture and you have an isolation of concerns with um, say the the product part of the web of the application can scale independent of the payment system because they might be hit differently so yeah it, it really depends on how the application was built and and this is depending on the project and depending on the customer and their needs um, this is what we take into account kind of from the get-go if they intend for the site to be able to support a large amount of users or have large fluctuations in traffic. So out of interest, how is the market evolving at the minute from, from how you see it? Because I mean, I, I've had some conversations with people where we're beginning to talk about cloud and it's it's very much a tailored niche service and there'll be one provider that provides a particular service within the cloud versus this other kind of train of thought, which is you've got a lot of businesses who weren't previously really online not properly and they are adopting cloud for the first time and that early adoption piece is still going on at scale is it like there's a two-track kind of um, evolution of the market going on or is it really that there's there's predominantly still a lot of businesses who despite us having been speaking about cloud for a number of years quite a few number of years are still going through that initial adoption piece um, so on the first question about um, different cloud providers, for the majority, each of the main competitors, so like uh, so Azure, Microsoft Azure, Amazon Web Services, and and Google, they they all roughly provide the same services. They're, they're basically feature parity. There might be mm -hmm. some which are slightly different or easier to integrate with, but it's pretty even at the moment for us. AWS is kind of our go-to, but we also have products, uh, projects and, and customers in all the other different providers and on-premise cloud, like private cloud as well, with our, like SAP. For the the kind of, I guess it's on-prem versus cloud and some customers are still, clients are still unsure if they should, which one they should pick. Again, it's down to requirements. Um, it really depends. So typically with um, cloud providers, you'll be paying, because you're not, obviously um, owning and renting physical data center space and servers and such and having to manage the infrastructure around that and networking and and firewalls and all of this stuff. Um, when you go for a kind of a cloud option, you'll be paying not to have to do that. <laughs> you'll be paying for that to be managed for you and you just get some compute resource or some storage um, with a typically a nice interface and you can put whatever you want on it. Um, mm. you can run multiple different applications, you can run different databases, things like this, and, and you don't have to get a specialist in to understand how to provision ESXi or virtual machines or um, someone to physically go in the data center and upgrade your two terabyte hard drive to a 10 terabyte hard drive. One thing that we've definitely seen is we've seen businesses scrambling. And there's there's been this narrative that what this has exposed was that a lot of business businesses um, business continuity planning wasn't really up to scratch. Is that something that you agree with? And, and, and how is that changing businesses at the minute? Yes, definitely. Um, when it comes to business continuity and disaster recovery, it's almost always the, like, the last thought or not even a thought at all. And um, when things do happen, like a pandemic, um, it, it really shows and um, it costs a lot more kind of retrofitting that in and scrambling to get it 
something in place than it is to have it as part of your foundation from the beginning and and being able to, for example, um, uh, redeploy your application kind of at, at a press of a button or have an infrastructure as code um, rather than having it a manual process where you have to get a developer or a, de or a DevOps engineer to to kind of reprovision, re uh, redeploy a whole application at a critical time. Um, from a from tangent's point of view, when we um, when we look at projects and customers and we and we produce statements of work, we have a checklist of things that kind of are musts for a project and kind of business continuity and disaster recovery is is right up there at the top. We always suggest that it should be at the forefront of any application. Why? Why do you think it? it do you think it was, but it was just inadequate, or do you think it was that businesses hadn't really ever kind of? Well, you don't expect a pandemic to happen, right? <laughs> um, I think everyone knows that it should be done. Um, it's it's just one of those things which get kind of lost in the weeds, and um, once the the application or the project is complete, then you don't want to kind of pretend there's a pandemic you, you've just like gone to production or you're you're like a few weeks away from going live you don't want to uh simulate a pandemic uh and this is what you need to do you need to from an infrastructure point of view you need to kind of rip out things but underneath the application like just taking the database away you want to um crash a virtual machine etc it's it has an art to it and it, it can become quite complex and there's whole papers and and tooling and and processes around this and it, and it can get really in depth um it's just one of those things which needs to be planned from the get-go so i suppose the outcome of this is going to be that as, as awful as as the pandemic is we are going to come out the other side with businesses that are both more robust and i suppose more flexible and agile at the same time yeah exactly um and I know it sounds a bit kind of morbid, but if this happens again or any kind of worldwide scale kind of thing like this, or the same same scale happens again, then hopefully businesses will be a lot more prepared for it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's kind of, uh, yeah, businesses will be prepared for any kind of uh, disaster movie eventuality. Hopefully not, not that any more are on the horizon anytime soon. Yeah. Um, Look, I really appreciate you taking the time to dial in from Bristol uh, and talk a little bit about uh, Tangent, talk a little bit about what you're seeing going on in the market at the moment. So, uh, yeah, look, um, Stuart, thanks for your time. And if you do find yourself traveling into London anytime soon, stay safe. Thank you very much, David. It was great talking. So we recorded this outside and then due to the s storming weather that we're <laughs> having, the uh, the laptop overheated. It did. And it didn't record everything. I'm going to say it was the greatest episode of Tech Talks ever. I, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I that's, was great. That's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, also, I started that by making a joke about you doing online shopping. And in the intervening period between that recording not working and this one, I've had some stuff delivered. Yes, you have. So when you started that recording, you started it with, you've been doing lots of online shopping. So today has now proved that actually, no, David has been doing lots of online shopping. It's shorts and a jacket. I need them. I need them. He needs it. It's very important. Um, <laughs> but 
Joking aside, uh, you've got more. Well, actually, no, not joking aside. This is this is still joking, but there is a serious point in that you have lots of stuff in shopping trolleys on various different websites. I do. I think it. I think it's a problem. Yes. But I love it. <laughs> I must be the weirdest person. So we were supposed to be moving house, and then that didn't happen. So I had baskets everywhere filled with dining tables, chairs, napkins towels all different kinds of things and then I got rid of them all I was like oh well I need holiday stuff now so now I've got baskets full of holiday stuff or everything you can possibly imagine and now I've been brought back into oh wouldn't it be nice to have a new dinnerware set yes yes uh <laughs> but it's fair to say that you spent time in queues uh-huh. on e-commerce sites yeah and when listening to Stu talk about being queue and a queue of hundreds of thousands of people yeah and scale being an issue for these organisations, you tried to buy some hair dye. I did. And it didn't work. No, it was boots. And I couldn't believe it because, you know, it's boots. You'd expect that they'd be able to handle this kind of demand. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. So I needed hair dye. It was a rather desperate situation. Uh, I hadn't had my hair done since November because I was waiting to get it done in March, which was when everything locked down. So I was in a desperate state of affairs. And in the end, I had to get it from ASOS. Yeah, so the fact that Boots is Q, I mean, how long did it say it was going to... Well, it didn't. That was the problem. So it had a really long line with this little blue thing just ever so slightly edging forward. But it was edging forward, say, a millimetre every 10 minutes yeah and it said that when it reached the end of the line it would be your go but you could see that that was going to be hours worth of wait so i got on with my day went back still wasn't ready got on with the rest of my day oh no i missed missed my slot so it took me all the way back to the beginning to just thought suck that (laughs) now what i um what i find fascinating about that is you're right you would expect boots to be prepared they obviously weren't and they did lose a customer because you went to yeah. ASOS, yeah. you know, and, and when I asked you whether or not he thinks that customers are going to get frustrated and go elsewhere, Amazon are doing really well at the minute. And that's probably because you can you can rely on the Amazon site yeah. to be able to deal yeah, exactly. with the level of demand, whereas some of the brands that you might expect to be able to can't. Yeah, and it's a shame, really, because I'd rather buy from a Boots or a B&Q yeah. rather than go to Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another area where businesses seem to not be prepared um, is disaster recovery. Yes. Um, now, you are a technology project manager. For my sins. So you know a bit about disaster recovery. Um, is it always a last thought? I mean... No. <laughs> <laughs> sensible answer. But... Come on, for a lot of organisations, I, I, I think Stu's entirely right when he talks about, you know, everyone knows that it should be done, but it gets lost in the weeds. And there is that pressure yeah. to go live. No, there's always pressure to go live. And there's always going to be things that come up that are unexpected and the time scale keeps getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. So you reckon you've got this amazing slot for DR and then all of a sudden it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But I think as long as you have a supportive Steerco, and they have probably seen situations before where it hasn't been, you know, looked at and then things have gone tits up. You really, really need to make sure that that DR is in place. And also, we were watching Jurassic Park the other night. We were. Brilliant film. Literally stood the test of time. Great film. But 
When it gets to the point where it's all very exciting and they're going to switch off the park and hope that when they pull... Exc- for exciting, go, it's supposed to be horrifying. <laughs> no, it's... At the point where everyone's getting eaten, yeah? Yes, Yeah, exciting, it. exciting. Right, <laughs> carry on. So they're going to switch off everything in the park, very dangerous, and then they're going to, you know, put it back on. But it's never been tested. And when Samuel L. Jackson says those words, hold on to your butt, I could not believe it. They've got wild creatures in there that can eat you and they haven't done a DR test. So Jurassic Park, we think 1993, read Technology 2020. Yeah. Lots of organisations basically saying, hold on to your butts. Pretty much. Yeah, good, good. That's good to know. Um, (laughs) Look, Stu, thanks for being our guest. Uh, Really insightful comments there. We're going to take a very quick break. and When we come back, we're going to talk about a story in The Guardian. Right, welcome back to the show. Uh, We're going to talk about challenge accepted. Is the challenge accepted trend simply a Miss Instagram pageant or something more? Writes Nadine von Cohen. That's uh, today's Guardian. I'd I'd really recommend that everyone reads this. It's a really interesting article. Uh, For anyone who's not familiar... Um, the challenge accepted is something that you may have seen creeping on social, in particular Instagram, over the last few weeks you mentioned. I'd only really noticed it in the last few days. But a trend of uh, women posting black and white selfies. Um, the article is basically musing um, why or what place this has uh, in 2020 during a global pandemic, Black yeah. Lives Matter, everything else that's going on. Um, and kind of digging into a bit of the origin around it one which one of the theories is that this is very much about uh uh, women in turkey who are being murdered and then their images are appearing in the press in black and white format and the idea was that this started in turkey uh of women showing solidarity by saying well look it could be my photo in the press tomorrow so here's a photo of me black and white like it might appear in the papers which is a very powerful statement but the article suggests is perhaps getting lost by a pseudo-feminist campaign that doesn't really have a call to action. Yeah, I mean, I had seen it and I thought that it was part of the Turkey movement um, because I had heard of it. And then when I was reading through and I could see all the celebs, you know, that I follow and a few friends of mine that are doing it, it says challenge accepted. So then I did a little bit of reading and it's like, ooh, what challenge? So there's no hashtagging for the for the Turkish movement, for those women who are bravely putting their faces out there and trying to raise awareness for what is, you know, crazy, crazy things that are happening there for women. And I just thought, oh, what's what's going on? It just seems actually it's a challenge for me to have blow dried my hair and look really great in this photo that's black and white. There doesn't seem to be any kind of background to it. Mm. And it also it then takes away from any other piece that's happening. So people then aren't going out to then educate themselves as to why this is happening. And you just think that with the black tiles and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, that we've gone a little bit beyond this. If we're going to use the word challenge, it shouldn't be just you putting a pretty post. Yeah, and and, and the, the, the comment in the article is, where is really the challenge here? People yeah. are posting quite arty photos of themselves, um, you know, predominantly and and it's difficult to know because obviously everyone's got a bit of an echo chamber around their networks but predominantly 
you know, the, the author writes, white friends, white peers, white celebrities, white influencers, heterosexual white women at that. Yeah. Um, and that felt a million miles from um, the indigenous Australian women, black women, trans women, non-binary exactly. non women who are using it in quite a different way. Yeah. And it does raise the question around, well, why do we post certain topics and trends? And yeah. are they doing, you know, absolutely anything that supports women is a brilliant thing in this particular in, in, in society in this particular moment. Yeah. But is there an opportunity missed if people are posting without really understanding the context of why they're posting? Yeah, the, the opportunity has been missed. And, you know, I like to think it might be an echo chamber, but I like to think that I follow a varied um, group of people, um, you know, trans women, trans mm. black women, um, the LGBTQ um, community like to make sure that I'm kind of following all the, those posts and I haven't seen it there to me it has been very attractive white mm. women saying challenge accepted and I don't know what has challenged them yeah I mean it does it does point out that, that maybe the tide is turning many women have began using the trend to steer the discussion back towards black Lives mm. matters trans women's rights and other issues so black and white photos of american women who were killed by the police yeah. uh, are appearing in place or alongside selfies and the hashtag of women supporting trans women is now catching on um and it's being used to raise the awareness of, of murdered turkish women but of the eight million posts or so that have gone up in the last week or so yeah how many of them have been rooted in awareness or how many of those have helped educate people around that versus what would appear to be quite arty selfies and you know nothing against posting selfies no it's what the house I of instagram the yeah it's what the house <laughs> of instagram is built on as the article points out but um maybe for a lot of people actually a challenge a bigger challenge would not be posting selfies yeah exactly and i don't think that anybody's ever done anything like that to cause offense mm -hmm. i just think that at this moment in time there's a lack of um, awareness and sensitivity around what's happening in 2020 and yeah. hopefully beyond well look, we'll post a link to that article because it is well worth a read um but apart from that uh it's scorching weather have a lovely weekend Woohoo!